Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Gong, the podcast hosting conversations about the earliest stages of startup sales and all the fun stories that come from companies with little cash, no precedence, and lots of guts. My name is Adriel, and I've led sales at multiple companies, sometimes as CEO, other times as head of sales, and always with a love for the job and a fondness for fun stories. Currently, I lead sales at self-driving delivery car company Udelv. I love startup history, scrappy sales and stories, and I'm excited to learn them and share them with you. Our guest today is Derek Ron. Derek has spent his entire career in sales, doing all the jobs from an intro-level SDR to what he is currently, the VP of sales at Lead Genius, a lead generation startup with $19 million in funding. Derek has led some massive deals, including getting Lead Genius, at the time a little nothing startup like many of ours, into Google. He thinks a lot about what it takes to train young SDRs, how to move a company's sales strategy up market into larger deals, and a lot because of the relevancy of what his company does, what artificial intelligence means for the future of sales. My favorite part of our conversation is our discussion about how startups need to prepare themselves for selling larger clients. It's, it's not basically, it's not just bringing your current process into larger companies and emailing the C-suite O's or whatever at Fortune 500s and repeating it all. Personally, I'm obsessed with the value of selling to small companies and getting everything possible out of the fast sales cycle and fast feedback loops before moving to larger clients. And Derek agrees, Derek has been through that multiple times and knows that crossing that chasm from small client to large, that gap takes many startup lives. And we talk a lot about how to survive that crossing, how to do it thoughtfully, and as Derek said, how to take advantage of the fact that you only get one chance to bring your company up market. I learned a lot from Derek, and I actually took quite a few notes, including this great gem of a quote, that startups selling to startups is like drunk people selling each other beer at a bar. Eventually, everybody gets too drunk and goes home. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Derek Ron. Well, Derek, welcome to the gong. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, this is going to be a blast. I think we're going to have a lot of fun um, if our little pre-banter here is uh, any sign of what is to come. Uh, I wanted to start this conversation and we'll take it all over what it means to be a sales leader and, and, and how sales is evolving with what AI can do in the field and we'll take it everywhere. But I thought perhaps a good place to start would be with the holy grail of what a salesperson believes in their LinkedIn description. <laughs> in your LinkedIn description, you say that you are a sales chameleon. So I'd love to understand and start there with what is a sales chameleon? Yeah, it's funny, you know, like I, I've, I've talked about my, uh, my life and my career as like a storyteller and as, um, you know, as a listener and, and um, you know, what I was uh, thinking when I was rewriting my LinkedIn, uh, when I became a VP of sales, I was like thinking about what are like my characteristics as a person that make me effective in my job? Um, and I think that like, because I come from a very uh, diverse background, having lived in several different areas of the country and, you know, met a lot of different type of people. 
um, you know, one of the things that my friends have reflected on is that I have a really diverse friend group, like really diverse, um, you know, and, and I think that also kind of speaks to, you know, the, the type of sales that I've done. So I've done, you know, really big sales to the federal government, you know, multi-million dollar uh, common access card and multi-factor authentication sales to the Department of Defense. And I've done a sold small businesses, literally like micro small businesses, mom and pops trying to buy websites. So, you know, I, I think that sales, you know, again, is really all about how you relate subject matter to an audience and how you, you know, uh, solve, solve their problems. Um, but I, because I have such a, a wide breadth of kind of experience in selling things, uh, I consider myself to be a sales chameleon. What is that? How do you recommend people cultivate a skill like that? Oh man, it's, you know, it's, it's tough because I feel like, um, so much of this is just like putting yourself in the person's shoes that you're across the table from, um, and trying to actually understand their world. And so like, I always start with, what my commonalities are. And I was talking with this, with this company that sells um, HIPAA and PCI software. And, you know, how I related to that um, was that my, my dad was a, a chiropractor and my mom ran his front office. And those are the people that they sell to. So I, I understand that persona. I understand that buyer persona. So whether it's like finding personal experience where it's like, oh yeah, I know someone who's in that space. And oftentimes I'll even sit down before I have a conversation with a customer with someone who's in an adjacent field or that knows a little bit about a space and just say, Hey, tell me, tell me a little bit about this industry. Tell me, tell me about, you know, kind of what's happening, what's going on. What are, you know, what are the sensitive areas? What's some terminology I can use so that I look like I know what I'm talking about. Right. Like, and, and so I think that, you know, that people think about that as research a lot of times or pre-call planning. Um, I just think about it like kind of getting to know your surroundings and, and, you know, and, and then, you know, the second part of that is too, like, you know, good salespeople will match kind of the tonality of the, of the person that they're on and know when to inflect and know when to, uh, be more passive. And, and, you know, a lot of that is, you know, like reading the audience and knowing like, Hey, I'm talking with someone's very soft spoken right now. So I need to lower and dampen my voice or it's like i'm talking to a sales guy i need to be more high energy and you talk faster i need to match their tone and their and and their rate of speech um so that's that's what i you know when i think about sales chameleon and think about like kind of getting in that mindset for me it comes very naturally but when i've tried to teach reps about that it's like well do you know anything about the person you're selling to and they go no i've got no idea it's like, well, you need to learn something about that person. You need to yeah, learn something place, about that industry. One place where this actually right away as you were speaking, kind of uh, this light bulb lit up is when you're learning a new language, um, there's, there's, this, there's this immersion. Immersion, exactly. So, uh, you know, yeah. getting yourself into that world and you understand that world uh, a lot faster, but also importantly to sales and to your ability to navigate a new country, that culture, that kind of group of people begins to respect and understand you more. Um, there's this guy uh, named Benny the Polyglot. He's this Irish guy who speaks like over 20 languages and his whole thing is this framework for learning new languages. And I remember as I was learning Spanish through his program, he talked about how there's these little tiny little things that you can do to make it seem like you're really in the know to give yourself like a 
um, immersion advantage over somebody else. If you, if you just roll your R's or if you just learn this one little catchphrase of the area that you're going to, it makes it seem like you're just more like them than you really and truly are. And then as you make your way up the stepping stones of getting to know that language or that culture, um, you can work off of those low footholds and get stronger. And it seems uh, to me to be the same thing in sales. If you're attacking, if you're, if you're going for a new industry um, and you're talking to somebody who sells HIPAA um, certification software and that's not something you've ever done, well, if you can just learn the lingo a little bit, if you just learn one reference customer or you know that the CEO of that company gave a talk and you just happen to mention that, well, all of a sudden somebody gets really, really excited and they do most of the talking for you after that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that, you know, uh, breaking down that barrier, breaking down that wall and being seen as part of their um, part of their 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 peer group or cohort or, you know, like someone that they can relate to um, is is really, really critical. I mean, it's it's like the best and most advanced form of rapport building. You know, like there's always like the cheesy like intro parts of conversations where it's like, oh, you're in Boston, it's cold. And, you know, like th there's always that that goes back and forth. But if you can actually start a conversation with hey, you know, like, what do you think about the news about your industry? And, or like, I heard this is going on. Can you tell me more? And you actually like use that to actually make them, you know, create their own like feeling of confidence and subject matter expertise. They'll also start to break down the barriers and start to actually let you into their house a little bit to uncover that pain that's really going to, um, you know, make a pitch so much more effective. So a lot of people use the phrase people buy from people, um, which is a wonderful phrase, but I, and it, it's true, of course it's true, but also would love your thoughts about, you know, you made your way up, you've been doing this for about 15 years and now you're vice president. So a lot of your role um, as a salesperson is not so much, I imagine, in the sales as it is in the training. How do you approach training young salespeople to build, to be that kind of individual where it is the kind of person that people want to buy from, or even you, you gave some specific examples, uh, your inflection matters, your tone of voice matters, that adaptability to the kind of conversation you're having matters. How do you go about teaching younger salespeople or just people doing this for the first time, people working on this skill, how to do that? You said it's innate to you, um, but it's certainly not innate to everybody or all the millions of people who are doing sales in America. Yeah, you know, it's, I mean, it's, it's a challenge, right? Um, I think that, well, first of all, I would say people buy from people that they like, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, class. you know, so I'll add that little, like, last, like, caveat. People buy from people that they like, right? Um, and I think that, you know, uh, when, I, when I start to talk to either, you know, new salespeople or salespeople, like, I've got, you know, a couple of um, older gentlemen on my team and um, uh, an older lady who, you know, they are senior to me by 10, 20 years, right? Um, and so whenever I, you know, kind of bring either bring a salesperson on or interview a salesperson, I'm also trying to get an understanding of, you know, kind of their their worldview and understanding a little bit more about, you know, how they communicate and, and also how they receive, you know, information. Um, because training is one of those things that, that is challenging. I mean, you can, uh, you can give two like of the same BDRs, the same exact 
content. They have the same IQ, right? On paper, they could be the same type of student and you could deliver the same content um, in the same exact way and, and their absorption of that content or ability to actually replicate it and put it to use can be completely different. And so I think that, you know, it's always important to do some level of assessment whenever you're doing, whenever you're thinking about a training program and thinking about a training curriculum. And, and you know, like one of the things that, that we try to do is assess where people are to begin with. And because, you know, in our world, we're in the data space, um, you know, they have to know something about the data space. They also have to know about sales and marketing because those are our buyers. They also have to know about ops people and ops teams and how they work with, with Salesforce. And then they have to know about the individual industries that we sell into because, again, the nomenclature, the diction, the, the pain inside of these different industries are very different. Selling data to an e-commerce company or to a company that's targeting e-commerce is very, very different than selling to someone who's selling manufacturing or selling health to health services. So, you know, it, it, we try to verticalize our teams so that you can actually limit what they actually have to learn because there's already having to learn the data space, having to learn marketing, having to learn sales ops, and then you throw in a bunch of industries on top of it. It's too much. That's really interesting. Tell, so, uh, tell me a little bit more about that specifically. Um, sometimes it seems like in a startup in a small company, I mean, resources are very, very valuable, of course, because they're scarce. And sometimes it seems like those scarce resources might be put into the wrong field or deciding where to put them is difficult. You know, do you go to something? Um, do you want to put them into a certain industry? Do you want to put your engineering resources to target having larger install bases or greater stickiness or more top of funnel, more bottom of funnel, whatever it is? How do you think about, you talk about verticalizing your salespeople, how do you think about further ways that folks in, in startup companies can focus uh, their resources? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it, the you got to follow follow the uh, the almighty dollar in a, in a large respect. Um, you know, when we when I joined Lead Genius, we uh, really were start uh, we're selling to startups, um, and about eighty percent of our revenue came from other startups, uh, which you know is is pretty problematic uh, to say the least. I'll tell you, um, one of our one of our VCs uh, told me, you know, as we were grabbing drinks uh, after a board meeting one time, he's like, you know, we got we got to move away from from selling to startups. You know, startup selling to startups is like a bunch of drunks selling beer to each other at a bar. Uh, <laughs> you know, eventually the lights are going to come on, and everyone's going to be broke and drunk, and everyone's got to go home to their significant others. Uh, <laughs> and that's usually and that's usually a, a pretty uh, come to Jesus moment when that happens. So, you know, for us, you know, it was when I came in, I, I, you know, had a focus on taking us up market. It was um, something that the founders had identified as a, a, a strategic need. Um, and because, you know, in a lot of cases, it takes the same resources to fulfill a small customer as it does to fulfill a large customer. It's also about how do I make the best sense and make the best use of my resources? Because if I need a customer success manager on every account and I need, you know, project coordinators or I need other layers beneath that, I'd rather have that revenue be 5X than 1X 
right? Um, and so I think that, you know, you, you do have to follow the money and you also have to, you know, hopefully you're behind a, a founder that has, you know, a sense of the marketplace and, and who they solve for. Um, but you really have to, as early as you can, try to develop those patterns and try to look at what commonalities, what threads tie our, our consumers together. Um, and, and, you know, the sooner that you're able to do that, it's not even, it's, it's persona building, but it's, it's bigger than that because it's really about like, you know, what types of organizations should we sell to? And, you know, if we look at two different industries, are they different? Are they different in their buying habits? Their sales cycles look differently. Do their procurement methods look differently? Do we need to have different approaches, different collateral, different sales decks for different, you know, parts of the market? Um, and you know, you can look at the close time and things like that, but really you should be looking at the activity that leads to successful sales. And then, you know, using that to focus your, your go-to-market strategy and your outbound, you know? So I think that, um, you know, that's, that's all the ways, the way I've always, the way I've kind of thought about it is, you know, the proofs in the pudding, who's willing to, to put up the dollars. And I've had, you know, instincts about stuff that I'm like, oh yeah, this is where it's going to be. And, uh, we do the analysis and I'm, I'm completely wrong. You mentioned that beautiful quote. I think that's a uh, title worthy LinkedIn shareable startup selling to startups is like a bunch of drunks selling beer to each other at a bar. But oftentimes that seems to be the first customer that comes up. And, and there's lots of examples like that. Lead Genius um, is obviously one of them. The one I really like is Stripe. Uh, Patrick Collison, the CEO of Stripe, mm -hmm. went around to all the other companies in Y Combinator, literally took their computers away from them and wrote the line of code to, to the API into Stripe into their websites and then gave the computers back. Like, didn't even give a chance to, it wasn't a sales process. He just took people's computers, put Stripe on there, and then made the sale to startups. But eventually, yeah. you're right. You know, probably half of those went out of business, the other half never paid. Um, and you got to move into, uh, you got to move up market and you got to find those connections. I would love to, as much as you're, you're able to share here, a specific story of, um, something either you've been through or you've seen about how moving up market works. Um, many companies start with smaller clients and make their way up. Many companies start in one industry and move horizontally to another industry when they realize that that under industry is better. And, and you know, we've got plenty of our own. I got plenty of my own, at least in, in uh, the startups I've worked with. In your experience, would love to hear of an example of moving either up market and growing from smaller deals to larger deals and, and how you handle that or moving horizontally. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, um, moving up market is, you know, easier said than done because you're you're not only a reliant, especially as a, a, I'm speaking really from the perspective of, of a startup in this case, but like, you know, one of the challenges with the moving up market is like, is your organization actually equipped and ready to handle an enterprise sales process? Um, you know, give, give me can, an example. Can you dig into that a little bit? Yeah. Like, like, you know, can you pass an infosec review from Google? <laughs> right? You want to sell to Google, but like, are your systems and your architecture and your product at the point where you actually are not a liability to their, you know, their security team, right? Can you make it through a procurement process with these companies? Can you extend terms? Do you have the cash flow to expend, extend net 90 terms that some of these companies are going to expect and to float cash? These are like, you know, like, 
business maturation questions, right? So I think that like what it's one of the funny things is, especially when you're hang out in Silicon Valley and you, you hang out with you know entrepreneurs, it's like, oh yeah, we're ready to start selling enterprise. And it's like, what what tells you that? And and then they're like, well, what do you mean? Like we have, you know, 150 installed customers and you know they 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 love us. And it's like, yeah, great. Like, what's the biggest customer you have? And they start talking about it. it's like great like walk me through that sales process like walk me through how you is well, well I know their founder it's like yeah you know their founder you you're able to cut them a sweetheart deal and you know it's a love fest um, when you start to sell the mid market enterprise groups the number of eyes the amount of scrutiny that goes into a deal is just the magnification factor is is so much higher um, and so you know like you know I think that whenever founders decide that they're going to or whatever an organization decides that they're going to go up market they also have to understand that while that deal might be five or 10x what their smb customer is the friction the the time the the you know the closing time is going to also mirror that cost benefit and where i've people get in trouble is they get they're like, well, we don't understand what's going on. Our normal closing process is, you know, our, our sales cycle is three weeks. And, you know, this deal's been out there for three months. It's like, yeah, you're, you're selling to enterprise. Like, it's going to take you a month just to get through their, their infosec process. It's going to take you another month to get through their procurement process. And that's if they even, like, return your calls. And then that's like, you know, think about what legal is going to do your contracts. Like, do you have legal on your side that can take their red lines and, and you know, put them into practice or say yes and no? So I think that, you know, it's like always uh, really, really, you know, and like it's always something that the companies are like, how do we go up market faster? And it's like going up market when, when the organization is at that natural organic point where it really, really makes sense um, to do it. And you also know that you can fulfill what you're selling because I'll tell you that you only get one chance at going up market. You, you really screw someone over by, um, you know, selling them, you know, a rose garden and then delivering uh, a bunch of manure. And, you know, that, that word gets around town real quickly. So, um, you know, I, 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 I'm not trying to scare people away, but I'm just saying I, I've seen some situations where, you know, it's, you get to the point where it's like, we can't even fulfill this deal. What, what, what were we thinking? Cause they, their eyes are bigger than their, than their stomach. Yeah. I think, uh, uh that last one hits home, especially in a, in a startup. And I strongly believe this, but it's the responsibility partially of the founder, but I think more than anybody of the head, then more than anybody, it's the responsibility of the head of sales to be that point of trust and that final point of, of, true honesty and candor uh, between the customer and the company. Because oftentimes the founder, once they're done being, if they're not very involved in, in the sales process, they might be a little bit removed. And just like, oh yeah, sure, sell, sell, sell. Tell them, you know, if we're late, we're late, it's okay. It'll totally work out. And obviously the startup wants you to sell, sell, sell. But the company you're dealing with only wants you to sell what you're able to deliver because they are already discounting what you're telling them by 50%. They already think that you're, you're blowing something up a little bit or you're puffing out your chest. But when a salesperson at a startup takes this job with the true kind of responsibility that's behind it, guarding the the integrity of the startup that's doing the sale and protecting the interests of the customer, balancing that can be very, very difficult because you're getting pushed from either side um, to either sell more, sell less, or undercut, or undersell, or oversell, or sell the dream versus sell the reality, 
and it becomes a very fine line very quickly and, and you can sink a little bit um, below that line if you if you go too far yeah yeah for sure i mean again you know um there's like you know there's always going to be especially selling enterprise there's always going to be some type of technical caveat or some type of you know hoop that you're going to have to jump through right whether it's the terms that you're extending them or whether it's hey you know we want you know an api or we want you know we want you to do this inside the product right there's there's always that give and take and it's funny because you know i think founders and and people that are sitting there you know trying to you know get ready for the next board meeting are very eager to say, yeah, yeah, tell them whatever they need in order to get it done. And then it's like, but can we execute? Because I'm the person who who have just put my name and my reputation on the line for you. Like, are you actually going to support me with the organizational support needed in order to make this happen? And I've been very fortunate to, you know, to uh, have, you know, uh, companies and, and founders that, um, don't make me cross that line, but I've seen people just forced in these situations where they're like, sell the deal and we'll worry about it later. And, you know, that's why salespeople get a bad rep. Like, that's why, you know, it's funny when I talk to, you know, when I've recruited some people out of CS to be salespeople, I've recruited people from other disciplines where I see they have some natural sales ability and really active listening skills. And, um, you know, they're most of the time, their biggest hesitation is like, ah, I don't want to be like a slimy salesperson. It's like, do you, am I slimy? And they're like, no. It's like, then just sell like me. <laughs> just, just, sell, just sell honestly. And if you, if you can't help the customer walk away from the deal and you'll live to see another day. So I, I, think, that, I think that a lot of that stigma type, that stereotype and that stigma has, has disappeared in the sales, um, you know, kind of space. But I mean, I just remember that uh, you know, talking to people that I was trying to recruit out of, out of college, uh, at my, at my last job to become salespeople. And they're like, why would I waste my degree and go into sales? It's like, do you even understand what we do? So, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's always a balancing act. Do you, you may, you may, the answer to this next question, maybe no, or, or maybe it'll just be something you think of in a day or two. Um, which is totally fine and we can move on if that's the case. But do you have an example that comes to mind of when in your career you as a salesperson have had an ethical decision in front of you, uh, maybe as, as, as the leader actually in the sales position? And ethical doesn't mean you know, you're gonna harm somebody by doing, by doing one thing or another, but do you remember a time where you have had this sort of um, challenge of choosing uh, anything that comes to mind and you know, naming names uh, may not be the right thing here, but but any sort of example in which you've had to make a conscious decision to do what you believed is the right thing when you got pushback from others? Yeah, I mean, I've, I think that those kind of conflicts, if you're in sales long enough, are, are going to exist. And, um, you know, also because I've worked for a lot of, um, you know, kind of like professional services types of organizations, um, you know, the the conflict there can be, um, more stark and more material because, you know, in software, it can be binary. It either does or doesn't do this. The feature does or doesn't exist. Um, you know, they're like, this is how frequently we do batches or, you know, there's, there's a certain amount of um, drawn boundaries to that type of software sale, which is, you know, why people are attracted to software sales. Uh, in the professional services world, you know, there's a lot of estimates. There's a lot of, 
um, well, we think it's going to take this long, or, you know, we think that this is what the, the development time is, the professional services behind it is, the implementation is, uh, the feature functionality is, and then you actually get into the, the, the sale and you've sold something, you know, even if you had the best of intentions and it's like, oh crap, the, you know, the alignment is off, you know, the, the amount of work that's needed is more or less. Right. And it's like, you know, oftentimes organizations are just like, great, you know, like, we'll just take that money. We're just going to put it in our pocket. And, uh, you know, they kind of, you know, over scope and, you know, and, and, you know, take, take that money in return. But I think that, you know, when I've had to sell small businesses, you know, when these people are living, you know, and, and, providing jobs for other people, you want to try to put as much of that money back in the business as possible. So I've definitely had some situations where, um, you know, I, I felt like we were um, overcharging a customer for the, what we were delivering. And I, you know, tried to make the internal case to uh, the company I was working for that, you know, giving that money back to the customer or repurposing that money for a marketing spend where that customer then would be more and more successful with us uh, was in our best interest. And again, fortunately, um, you know, for the most part, I've, I've worked for organizations that uh, think about those people as actual people. And, and, you know, I always, when these ethical dilemmas come up, I always kind of think about this as a formula. It's a, there's a customer, there's a company, and then there's a consultant, the three C's, right? Those are the kind of the three aspects of a deal. So you've got, you know, the customer, which, you know, without a customer, the company doesn't exist, right? So you, so you have to have that customer, you have to sell that customer, and you have to appreciate their business and retain it. Um, that company, if that company doesn't exist, then the consultant doesn't exist, that rep the sales rep doesn't exist, right? Um, but any time that you get too far out of balance in between, oh, like the customer's really getting hosed over here and the rep is doing really well and the company's doing okay, like you should be evaluating, you know, th those cases and saying, hey, how do we align, you know, our compensation, our, our, our offering, our deliverable so that you create as much of a win-win-win situation as you can, because anytime you get those things too far to whack in anyone's favor, uh, you're going to create conflict and you're going to create really unsatisfied parties and 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 a bad business. To be honest with you, like it's not it don't, if you're too far out of whack in any three of those areas, then it's not a sustainable business model. Yeah, it, it that's why kind of to wrap that part of it up. I am a huge proponent of. Uh, somebody from the sales team, maybe the salespeople are in a small enough company, the head of sales, switching over to operations for a period of time and vice versa so that they can mm -hmm. really appreciate what it takes to implement the thing that they're selling. So when they say a month and they go and see what it takes and how it actually takes eight weeks, uh, they begin to appreciate that it's not just, oh, work a little harder, you'll get it done in a month, um, but to understand the difference and same thing on the other side. Um, so I'm a, I'm a huge fan of swapping roles. Yeah. And that's why I've also liked to kind of, I've picked, you know, customer service people out and like recruited them into sales through the course of my career because they have that fulfillment perspective and they're going to under promise and over deliver, which again, like you can't look at it on an individual transaction basis, because if you, if you just looked at it on an individual transaction basis, the company's going to look, look at it and say, well, the customer's really, really benefiting here and we're holding the bag. You have to look at it over, you know, a complete lifetime and life cycle of, of, a, of an account and understand that like, you know, these are, this is transactions, you know, that, that account for debits and credits that 
equal a balance, hopefully at the end of the day. And customer success people tend to have, especially people that have been in the front lines in fulfillment, talking with angry customers, they tend to make really, really good salespeople because they, they know how to kind of draw that line, right? They know how to like, okay, this is like, I can go just this far without really, really uh, violating ethics or over-promising or getting myself in trouble down the line. Derek, if I'm if I'm catching a theme here, I think it's that you have had the uh, the, the courage to stand up to your own companies quite a few times, um, with 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 your own ideas, and that uh, oftentimes it seems you're playing the role of I don't know contrarian thinker or uh, naysayer in a good way um, within your own company. If if that's right or wrong, please correct me. But the question stands of as a current VP of sales at a well-growing startup, uh, Lead Genius, how do you think about your role within the company, specifically as it comes to helping the company pick its direction, helping the company know what to say yes to and what to say no to from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, that, that VP of sales role is, is one, you know, um, is mentorship and guiding the the you know types of deals that we engage in to make sure that we're having successful customer engagements and that we're growing organically and and you know when you um, delight a customer and exceed their expectations, there's no better way to grow your business than than to you know to do that organically and and because also the the rate that people change jobs now is so frequent. I mean, I've sold some of my customers, you know, three or four times over within just my time at Lead Genius because they they get to success, you know, at, at one company and then it's time for the next opportunity. It's time for the next challenge. And then they, they take us with them. So, you know, I think that like being a conduit to the marketplace to say, Hey, you know, like these are the type of deals that we should be selling. This is how we should go up market. This is how that that strategy should unravel. And and you know, also making sure that you know to the rest of the business that you're communicating, um, you know, and understanding you know where the pushbacks are or you know where the the roadmap is is you know needs to go and and how we get there as an organization and and not just try to grab as much cash as quickly as possible, but to actually sell deals that you know that you're going to be able to fulfill that also lead to internal learnings and, you know, a better overall level of customer success, but also things like, you know, better margins because you just understand what you're doing more and you have more muscle memory because you're actually being strategic about the types of businesses that you're going out and selling to us. So I think that like that conduit to the marketplace and actually the voice of the customer is a really, really critical one and, and not just, you know, what they complain about, but what they actually want, what they, what, what would make them double their spend and actually just asking the customer that what lead genius does is a lot of the work has to do with um, the AI involved in the sales process and how that changes over time. Um, so would love to understand this is a very popular topic in, in uh, transactional sales or especially in shorter sales cycles of how AI is beginning to even replace salespeople or at least marketing automation becomes a big part of that personalization. A lot of that can be done with AI. What role do you think salespeople play? Or let me let me rephrase that. What aspects of the sales process will AI have its biggest impact of? 
and what role will salespeople play, especially as it comes to all the things that we've talked about, everything from empathy to personalization to caring for the customer and being their voice. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, really where AI is going to inform the sales process, inform the go-to-market team's activity, um, you know, is really going to be in analyzing the data around close one deals, successful one deals and closed loss deals. And a lot of this is already happening. I mean, a lot of this is already happening, uh, you know, in the space where, you know, companies are looking at engagement of, of people, you know, uh, how long they go between opening emails, visiting the site, doing other types of, you know, signal activity, right? And I think that, you know, being able to look at not just one deal, you know, the way that, that I've had to do it for most of my career is like, okay, well, let's look at what successful deals we sold and like literally going back and analyzing them to say, great, like this is a cohort. This is what they look like. How do we draw those, those commonalities and how do we then, you know, write ourselves a playbook that, you know, captures how this engagement went to make sure that we're replicating that as a best practice. I think that that's really where, you know, um, some of this AI has the benefit to do that and, and to do it, you know, across, you know, hundreds of sales reps instead of, you know, small groups of, you know, 20 or 30 sales reps um, to know when a deal is in danger because it's been in a stage for too long and because there's been uh, a change in the organization from a leadership standpoint. So, you know, I think that, um, you know, you're always going to have to have the sales rep who knows, who has to understand what do I need to do to get this deal back on track or like what, you know, and actually know what that next step is, but having AI tools that can guide that person, that can remind that person, that can keep their focus and allow them to fo focus the, the, the portion of the pipeline that either is at risk or that is really, really likely to close and keep their attention is where I, I see the most benefit of, of AI, at least in the, in the short term in the next five years. What do you hope your job looks like uh, five to 10 years from now? Oh, man. Uh, so that's a great question. I mean, I think the more time that you can spend with reps in the field on calls and less that you're going to be spending, you know, doing administrative stuff and building forecast and, and, you know, kind of doing the admin work behind, uh, you know, sales leadership, um, you know, I think the, the better off you are, you know, again, I think that about also the VP of sales is kind of a voice of the customer and kind of the conduit to the marketplace between, you know, the internal teams that might be living in, you know, ivory towers and people that actually have to, you know, fa go face to face with these customers on a day to day basis and, and try to sell them something. Uh, and so I hope that, you know, what, you know, what these roles become with, you know, additional tooling is, you know, uh, less babysitting and more actual, you know, mentorship, more training, more, um, you know, consulting the, the reps on, on how to actually interact in these scenarios and less like, you know, Hey, you didn't follow up on that last call. Like that's the, that's the worst part of my job is like literally looking at, Oh, it's been in this stage for so long. Like what's going on here. And like, 
then having to like manually go through and like go through a bunch of emails and like figure out, you know, what's going on and then get on the phone with the rep and, you know, have that conversation when, when, when those notifications become, um, you know, just self-fulfilling and it's just like, Oh, you got a notification. Like it becomes a lot easier to, um, do that, that kind of micro task management. And cause again, most managers don't want to do micromanagement, but it is a part of, of managing salespeople is making sure that their, their fundamentals are, um, you know, tight and that they're not getting sloppy as they get more and more successful. Yeah. Um, I, I, I love that. I, I hope that's a feature you can make your way towards, uh, Derek in our final few minutes here. Um, I just want to ask you a couple of fire round questions. I'll ask them quick and you can take as long or as short as you want to answer them. All right. Sure. Let's do it. Uh, any sales or startup books that have been particularly helpful to you? Oh, I mean, you know, that's, uh, I think that, that to sell as human by Daniel Pink is, is like one of my favorite, like, you know, overall sales books. Um, you know, there's just, there's so much literature out there. Um, you know, I'm like drawing a blank right now. To sell as human is a strong answer. Yeah. I mean, to sell, to help sell a human is, is it's, you know, it's, it's kind of like telling you to go re read Zig Ziglar or like, <laughs> you know, it, to, to, it, you know, it's, it's very um, psychological sales oriented, which is again, when you, if you think about the conversation we've had about like, you need to, you know, foster a culture of, of understanding uh, and empathy for your customers and, and putting yourself in their shoes. I think that like, that's a great book that kind of captures that, that motif. Um, you know, the startup way um, is, a, is another good one. Um, and I mean, God, there's just, there's just so many, uh, the the purple cow. I don't know if you've read that one. That's, By that's Seth Godin. Yep, yep. He, you know, and he and he's real big on on the personalization piece and on you know, kind of like, you know how you're when you're successful is that you you you're actually you know, uh, casting the die and you're you are where your competition isn't right. Like you've you've you figured out how to differentiate yourself. And I just think that that's always something that I've. Um, you know, really been attracted to from uh, companies that I've wanted to work for standpoint was like, this company is different and here's why they're different and here's, and here's why they answer the questions that customers are trying to solve in a better way because they do think differently. And, and you, it, it, it is kind of, I'm very contrarian in that sense, like everyone's doing this. It's like, well, I'm going to go the other way. Um, and that's just my, uh, that, that, that's, that's a little bit of my personal personality. Yeah. Seth, Seth Godin is funny to me because uh, he's got this thing where he publishes something online on his blog every single day. So yes. seven days a week he's going to publish, which by virtue means he's got a lot of really good stuff out there and also a bunch of, you know, rough in the diamonds, so to speak. Uh, so Burble Cow, I think, was one of his diamonds in the rough, but um, Seth Godin's blog you could probably live on for uh, two years and not, not even begin to get through. Um, well, that, that was, I think, the longest answer ever to a short form question. Uh, but rapid <laughs> fire. Okay, okay. Let's let, we'll get better in the next one. But I love it. We got three three fantastic book recommendations. Um, what what is the sale you are most proud of landing? You know, it's funny because like when I get this question, I like oftentimes people are like, "Well, it'd be Google, right? Like you sold you sold into Google, you brought Lead Genius into Google." And actually, it's funny. It's actually eBay, 
and which is so uh, contrary because when I thought about eBay in 2015, when they when they started to engage with us, I was like, eBay, it's like where my dad goes to sell like his car parts, you know, for like, because he's a car collector. And, you know, it's just like the stigma that I had of kind of like this old marketplace that was like antiquated where you go to sell, you know, cards and stuff. Um, but it was actually because they had posted this RFP and this RFP was like so broad and so over consuming and it was just so wrong for what they were trying to actually accomplish as a business. We went in there and really, really reframed it for them and helped them to actually get to like a go to market strategy and actually align the seller acquisition piece that they were trying to do to rebrand with, you know, a data strategy that actually would allow them to do that. And actually, you know, so um, I think that's, that's, that's probably my, my proudest moment as a salesperson is because it was so far off of what they had actually published in RFP and you, it was really a, uh, an effort in convincing them that the way was that the way that we were going to present data was better. I, I love that. Yes, I love yeah. that. Um, what is a well-known company that you would have loved leading sales for in the early stage? And give me the pitch you would have used. Oh, man. Um, you know, I always look back on kind of the LinkedIn um, emergence. And I was like one of the really, really early adopters of this as I was like living in Phoenix at the time. And I was introducing a bunch of people to it. And they were just like, this is stupid. Why the hell would I want Facebook for my business? <laughs> right. <laughs> it was just like, it was just like, and you know, my, my pitch was like, well, you've got goals beyond this job, right? Like you've got it. You've got ambitions beyond what you're doing today. Right. And they're like, Oh yeah. I'm like, well, just think about this as an evolving resume. Right. And, and so I, I, I don't know if that answers your question, but like, that was one that like, you know, when I look back on my time in the Bay area, like one of my few regrets is that I just didn't do it early enough. I just didn't, I didn't take the leap. I was 30 years old by the time I went out to the, to the Bay area. And, you know, I wanted to go out there since the time I was, you know, 12 years old going to go see 49ers games with my aunt and uncle who lived in the area. So like, you know, it's just, it's, I think that LinkedIn, uh, example, you know, kind of paints that like, oh God, if I could have just, you know, just taken that next step and just been a little bit more brave and been a little bit more bold at that stage of my life, um, you know, my story might be a little bit different. I love that. Um, well, Derek, I want to thank you very, very much. This was a ton of fun. Uh, where can people learn more about your work, what you're doing, and, and uh, are you hiring at all at Lead Genius? Oh yeah. Well, I'm, I'm definitely hiring at Lead Genius, always looking for good enterprise consultants and, and reps that are really, um, you know, go to market focused people that are marketing and sales minded that are looking to, you know, uh, just kind of fight the status quo and really build uh, solutions for, for people and for customers and, and get to work with the most exciting brands in the world. Um, so, you know, if, if you want to get in touch with me, uh, Derek Ron uh, on LinkedIn, um, uh, at, at Derek Ron at, at Twitter. And, um, you know, obviously you can always go to leadgenius.com and, uh, ask for a custom data set and I can walk you through our methodology and how we approach the world of custom data and personalization in this, uh, age of, uh, automation and data saturation. Beautiful. And, and for anyone listening without looking at their podcast app, that's Ron R A H N. Uh, 
So check him out. And Derek, thank you so much. This was a blast. This was a blast. And it's really a pleasure meeting you, Adriel, and looking forward to, uh, uh, you know, kind of see, seeing the next uh, next podcast come out and, and following you uh, intensely moving forward. Looking forward to... Uh, <laughs> Looking forward to your future, man. We won ourselves a fan. All right. Thank you. Well, there you have it. Derek Ron, ladies and gentlemen. Sales leaders need to be operators. Sales leaders need to be the voice of the customer. And most importantly, sales leaders need to learn to say no. No to your customers and no to your colleagues. If you want to learn more about Derek and his work, find him on LinkedIn at Derek Ron or on Twitter at Derek Ron, Ron is spelled R-A-H-N. If you liked our podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review. Let us know what you think. If you didn't like the podcast, well, find me on Twitter or on Instagram, at alubarsky2, and we'll make it all better. Thanks, and happy selling.